0: John and Emily Bean have created a multi-enterprise farming business in northeastern Minnesota, near Duluth and the shores of Lake Superior. They founded Fairhaven Farm with a spirit of community building, a focus on soil health, and a desire to see a thriving local food system. They sell starter plants each spring for home gardeners grow food for over 50 families through their CSA program, and are launching a new pizza farm enterprise where the couple will serve wood-fired pizzas on the farm featuring all locally sourced ingredients, including fresh tomatoes and vegetables right from their field.
1: John Beaton and Fair Heaven Farm, welcome to One Planet Podcast.
2: Hi there, thanks for having me.
1: So first off, your produce looks really tasty and healthy. And just to give a little bit of background about your state, I don't think a lot of people know that Minnesota is ranked fifth in the country for agricultural production, despite you only having the 14th largest landmass. And there's something like over 73,000 farms. So it's really a big employer for the state. You run a small farm. So how did you come to farming and how do you see yourself within this greater agricultural community?
2: Yeah, Minnesota is a great place to be a farmer. And so it's interesting to compare and connect contrast the type of farm that we operate with the majority of agriculture being practiced in the state. And so most of the agriculture is actually large-scale, more kind of commodity-type farms. However, we're in northeastern Minnesota, just by Lake Superior. So this is actually interesting because it's not normally thought of as a agricultural area. However, there's a really strong, uh, thriving community of small-scale farms up in our part of the state, kind of nestled into the forests almost because all of this land was settled back at the turn of the century. So there's a lot of kind of smaller farms here. But I got my start farming. I went to the University of Minnesota Duluth. I majored in anthropology and kind of with a focus on food systems, how do communities feed themselves. And so in that way, got connected to some local farms in the area and started working on kind of larger scale vegetable farms and just kind of fell in love with the work. And at that time, just shortly after college, that's when I started Fairhaven Farm, which is a primarily a CSA farm. So that stands for community supported agriculture, which basically means that People kind of sign up with us in the springtime and become kind of members of our farm. And that entitles them to a share of the harvest as we progress through the season. So folks get a weekly vegetable box from about mid-June to the end of September. So it's a great way to kind of make our type of farm uh, work because there's a lot of risk involved with the type of farming we do. We plant many different types of vegetables but we're also dealing with inclement weather, sometimes unpredictable growing conditions. And so it's great to get support from customers and members up front, and then we can predict and plan for a great season. So kind of a unique farming model, but it's getting more popular, so.
1: So you feed around uh, 50 families. It's interesting as, as you see that spreading out into the communities and the reverberating effect and beyond your farm, you also serve on the Lake Superior Sustainable Farming Association. So just tell us a little bit more about your vision for greater Minnesota and farming.
2: Yeah, so through our CSA program, we do serve about 50 households. Yep, that's correct. We also sell starter plants bedding plants for home gardeners. And through this program, we sell thousands of plants. And so it's really neat. I mean, we're touching so many families, so many different ways. We're kind of providing fresh veg for families, but we're also kind of empowering other people to grow their own food, which is another big part of the puzzle here to have a kind of, as we cultivate a resilient community, it's gonna take a little bit of everything, people growing their own food and then supporting growers as well. And there again, with, with our type of farming, it is unique in, in, in that we're growing food and, and it's not a commodity type product. It's not something we're trying to sell on the world market because our vision here at, at the farm is to do just that. It's to have a thriving community and agriculture and farms that focus on feeding the people that are directly around them. Right. So we're not creating export products. We're creating and growing food for our community. And so that, so that's very unique, you know, that's very unique.
1: Yeah. And it's also respect for the environment. You're encouraging kind of changing people's dietary habits. And so it has this greater reverberation and Marley, who's visited your farm, maybe can speak to the experience that she had and what she enjoyed about the community experience.
3: Yeah, so I got to meet you through Plant the Revolution with the University of Minnesota Duluth. And there were a bunch of other farmers there, including you talking about CSAs. And I came out of it with a want to learn how to grow food of my own, especially up in Duluth in a dorm if I can, because it's so small. And I am also wondering, farming is very much seen as a generational profession. You pass it down, not many people will get into it. How do you try and make farming accessible to all people?
2: Yeah, you know, well, I just think in general, kind of where we are in time, I think that's kind of changing because you do often think about, okay, a farm, yeah, we're going to pass this on down through the, through the generation, through our families. But What's happening right now in the farming landscape is that many of the kind of beginning farmers or emerging farmers are actually kind of first generation farmers like myself. I didn't grow up on a farm and there are many challenges that are facing people who are trying to pass down farms. They have very large operations now, and then to pass that on to the next generation, and that has a a lot of kind of complications. And now the land values are very expensive. So what's happening now is that there's a lot of, I say, beginning emerging farmers. Many are women. Many are people from BIPOC communities, people of color, sometimes first or second generation immigrants. And so I think that's really unique because that cohort of people are carrying the same values that I just expressed in terms of, we're going to feed our communities. We're not going to create commodity products. We're going to feed our communities. And then this kind of creates this effect I see there is that now we're connecting each other. I see what we're doing, the farm that we're creating as more of a one part business, but it's also one part cultural expression. It's like, here's the food that can grow here, right? And when you define that, then you define, you start to define like a local diet. Well, here's what we can grow. Here's what we we should be eating and, and you know trying to figure out how to, to eat. And also when we bring people to the farm, then all of a sudden people get to connect with that. You get to connect with the land. And I think that's often, that's the biggest thing that's kind of missing in our farming, what you typically think of as like farming or agriculture. It's like it happens in an unseen place in a remote rural environment. Well, the the difference between that and what we're doing and what's trending kind of now happening with beginning farmers is that it is creating this kind of community connection. It's like bringing people to the farm It's and, and connecting them to their food source. That creates community. It, it kind of helps cultivate culture and connectivity. And so I think overall, the, it's like the landscape and kind of agriculture as a whole, it is shifting. It's trending towards it in a different direction. I think
1: it's hugely important and the sense of satisfaction, and some people get it from the arts who are not used to making, producing their own food, but there's the satisfaction of making something, bringing it into the world, seeing the whole cycle and the sense of well-being. I think it's important to address, and a lot of us are thinking about how connected we are to our devices So that sense of well-being is something you get when you walk on soil. But just tell us about that connection, that satisfaction, and it's like creating a greater family, I guess.
2: Yeah, I mean, the satisfaction is immense. The immense satisfaction equals the amount of work. Let's say that's the kind of uh, flip side is that it's an incredible uh, amount of effort that my wife and I and our workers and volunteers put forward into creating this good food it's extremely challenging but at the same time yeah the satisfaction is incredible we just sent off a couple days ago We grew 1200 tomato plants, little baby tomato plants that we sent to every single second grader in Duluth. And now today they're potting those up as a part of their farm to school project. So now we're touching the lives of all these children. And so it's that kind of stuff that keeps you going and interacting with the customers and being able to tell them about the plants and teach people about new types of food. Oh, that's great. The satisfaction is great. And then you mentioned art too, you know, and I think that kind of doing what we're doing is very similar to the artist's life because truly it's like our medium is the environment it's the soil it's the entire farm it's like we're painting this giant painting except we're moving the soil and adding to the soil and encouraging things to grow we have perennials apple trees fruit trees bushes that we're growing that will mature over time and change over time. It's kind of like we're altering the whole landscape. And that to me is my expression of art. So it's awesome. It's a great life to be able to live. And it's a great life to be able to share with other people.
1: Yeah. And there's also a spiritual dimension, if I may say. I don't know if you get a sense of that Do your rituals and connection.
2: Absolutely. I mean, well, my wife and I are Buddhists. We practice Buddhism and the main kind of message with that, a spiritual tradition is to benefit others. I mean, if you focus more on benefiting others than seeking just for oneself, this is where joy comes from, both for yourself and and others. So it is kind of a life of service. I mean, we can make a living at it, but at the same time, it's more about a life of service. We're serving other people. We're feeding people the best food you can find anywhere. When you speak about tradition or passing on farms, often what gets forgotten It's not just the land itself, but it's the wisdom. It's knowing how to coax life from the soil. That's very important. Whether whatever you're growing, there's a certain type of wisdom that it takes to grow those things. And that is something that's at risk of getting forgotten. So just that alone is extremely important to kind of keep going passed down to different generations like this. So it's spiritual in nature for sure. It's a motivation, foundational kind of motivation to serve others and provide for others.
1: And speaking about passing on to the generations, who have been some of your teachers in this, as you say, you're a first-generation farmer.
2: Sure. Well, I have a whole handful of folks that aren't necessarily farmers, but they taught me a lot about that proper motivation. And the people I look up to perhaps first and foremost are my grandpa and my father, because they taught me just so many different skills because to be a farmer you have to know how to do a little bit of everything. We build buildings. We do electrical. We do plumbing for our irrigation system. We do all kinds of projects like that just to create the infrastructure it takes to, to make the farm go. And both my grandpa and my dad were instrumental in teaching me those skills. And they're, again, the motivation to benefit others, but to be generous with my my time. But my farm mentor, Rick, at the first farm I worked at, was at Northern Harvest Farm and he taught me everything that I know about growing vegetables, but grew on a much bigger scale, but still the same principles applied. Taught me how to drive a tractor and all these other things. But then there are some other folks, I I think you have to kind of give a lot of credit to people who who have kind of an online presence. This is a distinctive feature of this generation is that you can spread knowledge through the internet. And so there's a couple folks, there's a, a guy in Quebec right now, J.M. Fortier is this market gardener, person who is sharing his wisdom with the entire world. And we really look up to him and his work. In fact, we've modeled our entire growing system within his market garden style setup. So we look up to him and there's another woman in Washington, Erin Benzikine, who runs Florette Farm, also operating on many of the same principles of soil health, running a very successful business. And so it's kind of neat. I think that's certainly worth mentioning, this online presence. I mean, watching YouTube videos and seeing what other people are doing. And that kind of places us, right, in northern Minnesota, in the same community as people all over the United States, all over the world. Truly, there are people all over the world practicing the same type of agriculture, the small-scale kind of market garden, human-scaled agriculture. Thousands of people all over the world practicing the same thing. So that is, to me, really, really amazing.
1: Yes, and farmers are natural conservationists. You've kind of touched on the
3: differences between your farm and big agricultural farms already just by how you've explained your farm. But, you know, there are so many big differences between these farms. And do you recommend people to try and find their local farmers to support instead of supporting big agricultural farms just from like a sustainability aspect as well as just a community aspect as well.
2: Well, you know, the thing is is I think there's a time and place for all. So I don't want to pit kind of small scale against big scale. I don't think that provides conflict and or could potentially breed conflict. So I don't want to pit the two against one another because at the end of the day, the kind of large scale farms Are the ones that are feeding so many people in our country. And their practices are changing slowly as we understand soil health more. But some of the main differences between what we're doing and like large scale farms, they're producing commodities that are being kind of sold on the world market. So you have prices that fluctuate with supply and demand. And oftentimes these. Things they're growing like grains, like corn and soy, they're being processed into other kind of products. So it's like, if you have a thousand acres of corn in your backyard, some of the best soil in the world, you can't go out and just eat that corn. It must be processed into something. So that to me creates a kind of a, a vulnerability, right? That's one more step it takes to take what you're growing and eat it. Whereas what we're doing, we're growing fruits and vegetables. And so it's kind of like I can walk out to my field and within 10 minutes, I could have dinner for myself and 10 of my friends, right? We can harvest a huge amount of food from a very small space. And just to contrast or kind of explain more about what we're doing, we grow our vegetables on Just about a half acre, essentially. So we can pack 50 boxes of vegetables every week for 16 weeks on a half acre and generate 50% of our income for our household on a half an acre. So that's incredible when you consider that most large-scale operations in that partnership, one of the partners has like a full-time job and that farming, even though it's on a much grander scale, just constitutes like someone's full-time wage or... In many instances, that farmer farming on a large track might even have another full-time job on top of that. So it just kind of shows you how precarious situation that a farmers find themselves in. And with our system and that we've learned from others, right? We haven't invented this, but we're kind of emulating what others are doing. We kind of have found a way to make it work both financially and we're producing food, right? That's the most critical thing. If I could, if, if you can take away anything, it's we're producing food that is serving the people located right around us. And I think that is absolutely critical. And that's the biggest difference between kind of large scale commodity type operations and what we're doing. We can move and we can adjust. We're more resilient because. If we need more food, we can plant more, right? Whereas on a large scale kind of type of operation, whether that's grain or kind of animal production, it's like they're set up for producing as much as possible. So when things like COVID happen, that throws a wrench in the whole works that I think what COVID demonstrated is that large scale system isn't as resilient as it could be because you disrupt the supply chain you disrupt the demand and all of a sudden now we have tremendous food waste. We have animals that are being sacrificed because they don't have a place to be processed. You have potatoes and grain and things that are rotting because they can't get processed at the same pace that they were used to. So I think the key to a resilient community and landscape is farmers directly around that community who can be flexible and who can change as their environment changes, as as our needs of a community changes. So that's the biggest difference, I think.
1: Yes. And as you said, it's not just COVID that the system is flawed because you talk about food waste and food miles. So it's really very efficient. You know, there is a home for the food that's not going to be thrown out and this must have other effects in terms of packaging. And so it's really a green model. I wasn't sure because to have a small farm and to get organic certified, I know that you have some organic products. Just tell us a little bit about that part of your farm.
2: Well, we use organic practices. However, there are many people who operate at our scale who are, and we go back and forth on that a little bit. It is an extra layer, an extra burden to become certified organic. And sometimes with that certification, if your primary outlet was a, let's say, grocery store, You could get a premium price for your product with that organic certification. And that applies there again. If you contrast that with a kind of large scale farm, right? You get a premium price for your, let's say, organic grain. Well, that makes a big difference because you're dealing basically only in wholesale type relationships. Well, we're building relationships directly with our consumers and customers. And so we're just very transparent about what we do. And for most people, that's sufficient. I mean, we invite people to come and see the farm. If they have any questions, we can, hey, this is exactly what we do and what we practice. And then we don't have to kind of have that burden of going through uh, the certification process and the thing with what we practice and what we emphasize or kind of what guides us to ensure that we are creating a safe and nutritious product is that we focus on feeding the soil and feeding the soil biology this is something that's totally emphasized even in organic production you can be an organic farm and simply not spray synthetic chemicals it doesn't necessarily define what you are doing it's kind of saying what you can't do, but it doesn't say what you should be doing. So in our system, we really emphasize soil health, and that focuses on the, like I say, the biology of the soil. Something that we're just learning more about now, and so we're actually practicing some things that aren't even totally common yet. We have a one of our workers is a, a, an expert with composting and creating compost teas. So we're actually taking compost, putting it in essentially a giant tea bag, aerating that overnight. And what we're doing is cultivating biology. We're taking the microorganisms that are in the compost and accelerating their growth by introducing oxygen into this tea. And then we're spreading that on our fields. So it's kind of like we're finding innovative ways to use the best available techniques and technology to improve our soil in Increase and and preserve our biology and our soil health. So we're not certified organic, but we do our best to have safe practices and, and grow the best food we can.
1: And I believe you're also helping other new, new farmers. Just tell us a little bit about how that process is and who you're mentoring.
2: Yeah, we do that in kind of a variety of ways. Some of it is informal. You know, we're also heavily involved in the National Young Farmers Coalition. And so we have a local chapter here in Duluth. And so through that, we've created a community of beginning farmers, young farmers that are getting going. And oftentimes it comes down to, hey, I don't have a piece of machinery. Can I borrow yours? Right. We have our rototiller is on somebody else's farm right now. We went over to another farm this weekend and helped one of our farmer friends install the kind of roll up sides on her big high tunnel. So often a lot of that, because farming can be very isolated right? You're kind of more or less confined to your farm in the spring because you're tending your starter plants. You're making sure everything's warm and you're getting ready to plant, which is extremely intensive amount of work in the spring. And so often just lending and being present for people, that can make a, a huge difference. I also worked for a couple of years as a land access navigator through a nonprofit called Renewing the Countryside, where that was more of a formal process where beginning and emerging farmers could reach out to me and ask for advice on how to purchase land, how to rent land, I've helped folks create leases. And that was a great experience. I got to know so many great people and actually saw firsthand an influx of beginning farmers moving to this area in order to seek out a supportive community that would support the kind of small scale agriculture that we're practicing. And then besides that, we actually have a a person that rents space on our farm. He is a nursery stock grower. So he's growing hazel nuts and fruit trees and berry bushes, different things like this, that he then sells. And so this is a relationship that we've had going for the past three or four years. And it's been great watching Ted grow his business each and every year too, with kind of our support of our infrastructure things we already have built that he doesn't have to build from scratch on his own land or buy land himself so we find many ways to kind of help other farmers which that's critical work for any farm now it's not just about being the biggest best farm it's about growing the number of farms because what's that kind of one industry where it's like the more farms, the better. Like I say, a resilient community is to have many farms serving the community like that. So we think that's really important.
1: Yeah, it's an ecosystem in many ways, an ecosystem of people. And a lot of us have been thinking, you mentioned COVID, and a lot of us have been rethinking how capitalism is or is not serving us. And it seems like what you're doing is a great collective. It's a little bit socialist, What is your feeling about them? It seems like you're really looking out for each other. And as you say, it's a business, but it's a way of life.
2: Yeah, in many ways, we're kind of carrying on a tradition of the previous owners of our farm, a wonderful woman. Her name is Linda, and that's who we bought our farm from. And when she had the farm, she had grassroots farm. That was the name, And she was heavily into grassroots organizing organizing around social issues and seeing the farm, the act of growing your own food and sharing that food with others as kind of a solution to many of the ill effects of capitalism and kind of scarcity and supply and demand, all these things that drive our culture and drive our society. I think a lot of time people struggle with trying to find solutions. I mean, you can advocate politically. I mean, that's certainly one avenue you can't do away with all options right it it takes a variety of things to kind of create solutions for the different problems issues that we have however i think that the farming and growing your own food and supporting farms and supporting people like us and in turn us supporting other farmers it is a solution in itself because kind of addresses everything right when you think about climate change reducing emissions. What's a huge factor in carbon emissions is the entire agricultural system itself. What it takes to plant millions of acres of crop and then distribute that all around the United States and keep them cool and all of these things. Well, when you buy local from a farm, it's essentially you drive to us or we make a short trip and now you've got food, the way that we practice our farming. And you know just kind of getting to know one another and sharing with one another and not necessarily being so obsessed with trying to extract value here and there from your community, like turning everything into products. So even just the act of sharing food, I think is kind of an act of rebellion in itself and one community in particular, the indigenous community right now, I'm just astounded by the the solutions that they are creating in the different tribal communities, we were right next to the Fond du Lac tribe and. They're creating community farms. They're creating community food processing centers where you can go in and preserve your harvest and rent garden space and share food and receive starter plants for your own garden. And oftentimes these services are like completely free. And so this is to me amazing. And I I, I really actually look up to the indigenous community and their emphasis on food sovereignty. And you see many examples all over the country of initiatives just like this. So yeah, food can be that force, you know, because we all need food. And when we share that food, when we grow it together, and everybody does a little bit, I mean, that's the kind of irony of the entire situation with folks living in poverty and and some folks having more resources than they could spend in 10 lifetimes. It's kind of like, If everyone shares and everyone grows a little bit, I mean, we could be living in utopia. We could be living with tremendous abundance because the soil will provide that. So we just kind of want to spread that message. And and I think farmers and and people who tend the earth are, you know, they're the experts in that. So it's good to look up to the farmers.
3: you've talked a lot about community and the sharing that these farmers have. And I know that you have recently just started a pizza farm along with your other farm. And I personally have never heard of a pizza farm before you explained it to me. So does this contribute to this community aspect and this sharing, as well as trying to improve everyone's lives with the food that you're growing?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, pizza farm. This is kind of a Midwestern phenomenon. This kind of started in Wisconsin, Minnesota. But there now are examples in Iowa. But this is something neat. Essentially, it's wood-fired pizza on the farm using the ingredients that the farm grows as toppings on the pizza. And like I said, there's a couple other farms that we really look up to in Wisconsin and southern Minnesota that have been doing this for quite some time. And I think they chose the pizza just because it's this universally accepted food item. Everyone loves it. And so many of the products that a farm can grow can just be added to that pizza. It's this constantly changing array of toppings through this throughout the season. And the idea behind the pizza farm is, yeah, you're right. It's about bringing people to the farm so that it's not this thing that happens in the background that you never see. It's this, you can come to our farm, you can walk 50 feet away and see, walk through the vegetable fields, see where the tomatoes are growing, and see where all the toppings come from. If you truly think about it, it's like in a restaurant type setting, 99% of restaurants are tied into the kind of national food distribution network. So if you truly want the freshest food you possibly can, there is no other way unless that restaurant has a giant farm attached to it. But if you want to experience fresh food, this is like incredibly unique opportunity to do that. And so we see that twofold, we see that as people can come to the farm, they can experience the farm, see things growing, right? Come to the countryside, meet the farmer where they're at rather than expecting the farmer to always be at the farmers market in town or find that product in a grocery store. It's like you're coming to the farmer now, which is great, we love that. And so it's one part community building and it's another part changing people's minds. So that you see the difference between my pizza and the pizza that you'd find at, you know, the restaurant in town, it's distinctly different. And I think the ingredients, the freshness of the ingredients and the quality care that that's put into that, that's what's, that is the difference. That's what's changing people's minds. Like when I first started farming, okay, it's hard work. It's great to grow so much food, what's motivating in that sense. But at the same time, like when you take those ingredients, the freshest you possibly can get, right? The best ingredients you can find anywhere. And you turn that into a meal. That's what got me hooked. You know, that's what changed my mind. That's what changed the minds of our customers, of people who now have been CSA customers for years and years. It's like trying that food. To kind of change your habits, your buying habits, and your priorities in your life. So, the pizza farm is huge. I mean, sure, in another sense, because we're producing so much of the ingredients, it's a profitable enterprise for our farm. Because at the end of the day, the ultimate reality is it is difficult to make a living as a farmer. Because if you're selling to a grocery store, you're selling your product at a a wholesale price. So now you bring people to the farm and you take these same ingredients, you chop them up and now they're even in smaller portions, you put them on a pizza and now you're selling this at a full retail price, which, you know, that really helps the farmer make a living so that they can have a normal life like anybody else with a good job, you know? So it's a profitable enterprise for the farm. It's focused on building community, bringing people to the farm. And then that food, the actual experience of that food is changing people's minds so that they can reprioritize their life. Because it makes a big difference when you support a small farm. And those are the customers we've had for years, it's hard to express how much that means to a person to have that type of support like that. So we're just trying to get more of that.
1: That's <laughs> a kind of buzzword now, and it's really important, is a circular economy. And I think that what you have in your sustainable farm, it is really a circular economy. When you talk about this word circular economy, people don't have very many real examples. It's a vague thing, but you really have that. And so I think it's really valuable for people to visit the farm to see that that's a kind of a circular economy in practice. And maybe they can find the circular economy in their own lives if they don't become farmers or aren't inspired to, you know, maybe... Install a vertical farm. I want to ask you. You've mentioned it's a hard life, and I believe your hours as a farmer. It is hard, but to speak a little bit about the rewards or how your life before you became a farmer and your life now, as you think about like a city life, and then this kind of sense of time that I think you must have as a farmer, this connection to the seasons and to the change of light.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, yes, it's a lot of work. It's uh, difficult. But for all of, for the past 12,000 years or so, it's like settled agriculture has happened. That's been the foundation of culture and society. Like I say, I studied anthropology in college and it's just, to me, the farmer, It was like a very human thing to do. It's very human to know and understand what's happening in nature and What's happening at this time of year versus that time of year at winter time, we slow way down. So it's a lot of work. Our season is very short in Northern Minnesota. And so it's a lot of concentrated effort within a few months. And then the winter kind of slows down and that's good. And then we get a time to rest and to make it work. And this is, I haven't perfected this, but it's something that as I grow into the farm and grow into the life, something that that i always have in the back of my mind is that to not necessarily see it as work it is life itself we have to go to the field and we have to tend to the crops when we tend to the crops it gives back tenfold and when we have two big freezers full of food at the end of the season and local meats that we find from other farm friends and we're feeling safe and secure in our household, and we have a giant supply of food. I mean, to me, that's wealth to know where your food comes from and to have worked extremely hard for it and then get to enjoy it over the winter. And so, as time goes on, that's that reality is becoming more solidified, and we embrace the life and embrace what life brings. And we're just not trying to make a distinction between work and life. It's not like we're. Waiting for the weekend so we can go do something completely different than we do during the week. It's like on the weekend, we just kind of take it easy and we stroll around the farm and we enjoy it. and We smell the flowers and we cook good food. And in that way, it doesn't have to be suffering. It can be joy. Same activity, suffering or joy. It just depends on what how you look at it.
1: So tell me how it works with, as you say, yes, it's life. You're you're working hand in hand with Emily. And how does the division of labor or how how does that work? Because it's also lovely to work with your family, isn't it?
2: Yeah, absolutely. My wife, Emily, and I, in fact, that's the foundation of our relationship is that we wanted to be full-time farmers. We want to be at the farm and we want to be together. There again, if you think about a life where the two partners have two separate jobs. I mean, you might only get to see each other on the weekends. And so we have cultivated a a strong relationship with our life and and our life's work as the foundation. And we just happen to have kind of complementary skill sets. Emily does the uh, accounting and inventory tracking and all of these behind the scenes things. I like talking to people and sharing our story. She's Becoming as our greenhouse enterprise grows at the same time our fresh vegetable enterprise grows. She's finding her joy in the greenhouse side of things where I like the field work and understanding the, the soil and, and figuring out the planting schedules and stuff. So it helps to have two people because when I'm tired, she could take over. When she's tired, I could take over and we can keep the ship moving.
3: So you've given so much information about your farm. Is there anything that you want to say to encourage more people to reach out to their farmers, like their local farmers, and see just how they can make these small changes in their life to support local farms and maybe change these habits of food?
2: Yeah, I can reemphasize the importance of supporting the local farms because truly they're the stewards, right? So if you think about any given city, or even if it's a small rural community, it's the soil that surrounds a particular community. It could either be just like anything. It could be wasted or it could be stewarded, tended to, and grown on. And farmers are so unique in our society in that they know how to do that. That skill is so important and Earlier, you mentioned all being connected to devices, disconnected from even daily rhythms, seasonal rhythms. And I think it's so important to remember the wisdom that it takes to, you're literally coaxing life from the soil. You're planting something in the soil and knowing what that soil needs to make that thing grow. And I'll say again too, that's been happening for the past 13,000 years through rise and fall of civilizations all throughout history, the farmers have always farmed, right? We're a part of it. The fact that I can plant a broccoli seed or a tomato seed or squash seed, corn seed means that I'm taking part in an unbroken lineage of seed savers and farmers that go back thousands of years. That's so important. And that's literally what organized civilization is dependent on. I think that's something that people forget, that the life in the soil and the wisdom it takes to cultivate crop, cultivate food from the soil, your life depends on it. And it's easy to forget that when you go to the grocery store and just buy your stuff and you're busy with your daily life. But knowing that, understanding that, embracing that and trying to learn more about that and engaging interacting with your local farmers, that's like, it can be a grounding force in your life. You'll learn more about yourself and about how your body works. You'll learn more about the environment. You'll learn more about the soil. And that can be then the root of community building, the root of health. It's so many things. It's such a positive force. And in my life, I have never encountered another group of people that are so generous and motivated through kindness and compassion than farmers. Because like I say, it's not very lucrative. It's not like you're out there making millions of dollars. You have to be motivated through altruistic motivation, compassion to to help and serve people, help feed people. There's no better group of people to be attached to than the farmers. So support your farmers, get to know them. I think that's one of the best decisions you can make in your life.
1: It's a beautiful and important message. And I think it's often said that without the bees, life on this planet could not survive. And likewise, without the farmers. We couldn't support life on this planet. I couldn't think of a more important vocation. And it's lovely to hear how much you get from it and how much you give through this process. So thank you, John Beaton and Fairhaven Farm for sharing your experiences of the hard work and the joy of coaxing life from the soil, your love of the land, nature, and good food, and for imparting those insights into farming, community, and land stewardship. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast.
2: You bet. Thank you for having me.
0: One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview is conducted by Mia Funk and Marley Hinchberger with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this podcast was Marley Hinchberger. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you would like to get involved in One Planet Podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.